My guest this week, Brett Hill, has such a delightful approach to teaching mindfulness and meditation. His degree in interpersonal communication and a fascination for technology led to a career as a technical storyteller, author, blogger, and speaker for companies like Microsoft, Adobe, and others. He studied Hakomi Somatic Psychotherapy, Meditation, and Mindfulness, and then founded the Quest Institute in Dallas. It was great fun chatting with Brett, and I think you're going to love listening, too. Welcome, Brett, to Mindful Social. I'm so glad that you reached out to me and we had a chance to talk, and I think people are really going to enjoy this show. So, Thank you. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your background? It doesn't have to go back to childhood. (laughs) Shoot, that's the fun stuff. Right? Uh, I have had a a long career in a way from... um, you know, it, it's been through sort of a few pivots, if you will. I guess that's the popular term these days, pivoting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wound up, when in college, I wound up studying uh, interpersonal communication. I started off in pre-med, and then I made a decision I wanted to stum- study what I wanted to study and not what my parents wanted me to study. So I'm like, you know, the, the <laughs> radical. I'm going to stand up for myself and do what I want to do. And uh, And I really was fascinated with interpersonal communication and man did it, it enlighten me about what's the, the breadth of the topics that are available there and and how much it matters mm-hmm. and how much it's not obvious what's going on it was just became so um <clears throat> aware of that from these studies because there's there's just so much from interpersonal attraction to persuasion to mass media there's just a giant amount nonverbal communication to group dynamics the topics are just endless and and deeply fascinating to me right however interesting thing happened because i'm a little bit of an older character uh, back in the day computers were just becoming like a thing for big for businesses and i had a fascination with them and so whenever they started to become very popular Turned out I was one of the only people around that knew anything about them. And so I wound up in the computer world, in the computer Mm -hmm. business. And I had this knack for explaining things that were technical in a way that people could understand. And that, you know, may have been because of my background in public speaking and debate uh, in high school combined with my studies in um, interpersonal communication. Then you marry that with a technical facility and capability. And that went pretty far for me. And I actually wound up working for Microsoft as a technical evangelist, they call them. Mm. So it's an actual name called technical evangelist. And, and it's a person that just goes out and, and helps to make people aware of the value of the technology um, in a way that they can relate to. So instead of saying, Things like, you know, oh, we've redesigned the UI and it's prettier. You know, it's kind of like, oh, it's it's more efficient and you'll get, you'll be more productive. So this means mm-hmm. you'll spend less time trying to figure stuff out. So rather than showing the feature, you sell the value of the and, and you try to make it relate. And so it becomes, and now the popular term is technical storytelling. Mm-hmm. 
And so I became something of a professional technical storyteller and traveled the world uh, for Microsoft and some other companies after that, um, doing that work. And then you know, in parallel to that, I started to study meditation and somatic psychology. Um, and I had a, there's a sort of an extension of my work with interpersonal communication, mm-hmm. except it started to be, to use the fancy term, intrapersonal communication, focusing inside. And I studied with some of the best people that I could find and just blew my mind the way that my world opened up as a result of that. And so I wound up kind of having this, you know, really fun skill set of this technical capability. And at the same time, this communications and facilitation with a psychological psychotherapy background now. Uh, and it all kind of came together, and I decided I wanted to teach people how to become more mindful and present when we talk to each other. Because mm. in the end, it seemed like that was really the fundamental thing. Once you begin to focus on that, so many things get better in your life. Wow. That's a really interesting kind of hybrid story, you know, because people often yeah. think that people who are... Um, understand technology don't understand the quote-unquote soft skills and um it seems like you were kind of in that middle space the whole time with being able to explain technology which um interestingly enough is something that i've always been known for as well there you go you know explaining to people how things work so that they didn't have to learn it themselves um especially the geeky stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of fun to be that translator. Well, it's a very valuable role because you can bring people from one level of understanding to another. So you're basically a teacher, right? It's a teaching function mm-hmm. and you're learning, you learn how to get people to follow along with some concepts that came in because I could get pretty geeky. I'm pretty deeply technical in some areas of expertise. And so it can get, you know, way down in there and you have to be very conscious of where is your audience or who you're talking with? What do they know? What do they need to know to get to where you want them to, to be in terms of an understanding? And that requires some skillfulness in terms of thinking about your, what you're saying who you're saying it to, what you need to say next in order to get an outcome that you want. And that way it's, it's a little mm, uh, calibrated and orchestrated, but it does, but having some mindfulness skills really help you with that, um, that process. And you can take those same skills and and move them from like a a talk or a, a lesson plan and turn them into, Oh, I'm dealing with somebody that I'm having a challenging conversation with. How do I navigate this conversation in an authentic, connected way mm-hmm. to achieve a better outcome than if I'm not thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, I think a lot of people are a little fearful about learning, whether it's technical or it's somatic yeah. psychology or whether it's mindfulness people tend to be kind of hesitant to learn from someone if they think they're having something pushed at them. And, you know, I think if you take the storytelling effect and you take that 
empathy and really make that connection with people, then it's a lot easier for them to um, see the value and then want more. Yes, that's you're so right. And you have to be aware of, in my own field of sensory, you know, sensitivity, it's kind of like, is there within me a push? Am I trying to push, you know, mm-hmm. because you can sense it in yourself, like, and I've noticed that before when I'm talking to people, and sometimes I'm noticing like, well, this really matters to me. I really have to get this point across because it's important. Well, that's more me than them, right? Yeah. So who am I acting in service for? And as soon as the other person picks up on like, well, I don't know what this guy's trying to do, but it sounds like it's about them. It feels like it. then they're going to back up and rightly so. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. can tell that if you just look and listen and and if you're mindful, so you're so right. When you're trying to bring someone along, if you to pardon, that's probably not an elegant use of term, but what I mean is, if you have a vision for where you, the understanding that you would like for them to have, mm-hmm. and you can begin to, you know, write the chapter, so to speak, about well, first we need to know this, and then we need to know this, and then. And off, make it an offering rather than, you know, a lecture, you know? Yeah. And yeah. if they subscribe to that, if they want to hear what you have to say, then they'll be happy to take it along. But if it's like in service to like, well, and aren't I great for being able to give you like ego or, and by the way, for if you buy today only, you can, you know, a kind of thing at the <laughs> end of it, like there's a hook at the end of it, then, you know, where's that, where's that at? <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, Listening to what you just said with my marketing hat on, um, those are the things that mindful marketers do as well. Conscious marketers do as well. It's more about telling the story, more about creating a relationship than it is pushing or selling or demanding in some cases. Well, you said it exactly right in my opinion it's really about the relationship mm-hmm. and when i talk to technical people i try to emphasize technology is about people it's always about people you're serving the people there are people who create the technology there are people who use the technology mm-hmm. and we keep thinking it's about the technology but it's not it's about who is crafting it? Who's running the business? What's the culture like within that? What's is it a respectful place from a from a, a people point of view? Mm-hmm. And if it's not, the products and services and the organization itself is going to suffer because they the way that they interact with their users can't suddenly magically make that turn to be people oriented whenever they're not internally people oriented. <laughs> Right. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of, kind of like, so no wonder their customer service is not so great at this company that doesn't even treat their own employees that well. Mm. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think there is, you know, we have that sense of immediacy in sales in customer service as well, that, you know, we got to solve this right now, get onto the next thing, get onto the next sale, get onto the next call, whatever that is. And we rush through it. And then we're not serving. We're just getting it done. And well, are- that's true. And there's so much on the productivity bandwagon, you know, you have to make every second productive. And that it becomes that becomes counterproductive at some point. Right. 
You and there's some books out there and some good studies on you can actually take your productivity to a whole nother level counterintuitively by slowing down sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't get me started on multitasking because that'll be the whole conversation. <laughs> okay, I consider myself duly <laughs> warned. That one, that one's a hot button for me, which mm-hmm. is one that I learned the hard way for sure. But um, so let's talk a little bit about the mindset of people that work in technology, mm-hmm. um, that work in a lot of different aspects of the tech industry. Mm-hmm. How does the idea of mindfulness apply to them? And does somatic psychology just scare the crap out of them and they run away screaming? <laughs> well, <laughs> somatic psychology hopefully doesn't, I mean, it's an idea, you might have some scary notions about it, but um, it's really um, a very warm, nurturing, and mm-hmm. cozy environment thing to engage if you ever do it. But um, most people probably don't even know what somatic psychology is. I think maybe we should outline that first. And I think that the my background, I studied Hakomi, which is a form of mindfulness-based somatic psychotherapy and psychology. Now, what that means is effectively that rather than you, you know, you know, you see on TV, I'm always complaining to my wife about how crappy the therapists are on TV, because they're really just, by my standard, really bad. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of, in, in a somatic psychotherapy framework, when someone comes in and starts telling you their story, and then this happened, and then that, happened, that's all interesting, but it's not really, it's only a part of the work. What we're really looking at is in a mindfulness-based therapy is helping people land on their experience in the moment. And that means in the moment with the therapist right now. Mm-hmm. And so the therapist will land on that. I'll tell you a story, how I, how I discovered this. Great. I was, uh, this is a little personal. I was um, about oh, 28 and I was crazy about this woman. And all of a sudden, one day, um, she just broke it off with me out of the blue. And I was completely devastated because I was, and I'm an all in sort of guy, like, and I I was all in and, and I didn't see this coming and I was just wiped out. So um, I took it really badly and I didn't know Mm -hmm. what to do. And in fact, I took it so badly. I was dysfunctional. I mean, I was not operating as a human being. I lost my job and uh, I was so like, I can't make it today. I'm like, you know, I was just a mess. So finally, one day after about a week of just being completely blown apart, I said, I need professional help. And I I looked up, you know, therapists in the area and I was in Boulder, Colorado at the time. And basically every other person's a therapist in Boulder. And and I, I wound up just walking to this guy's sight unseen. And I sat down and talked to this guy and um, he starts to talk to me and he says, so what's going on? And, he, and I'm explaining what's going on. And as I'm doing, and, I, and I'll describe this for people who can't see, it's like I'm making a little fist with my hand and kind of rubbing it sort of like a, you know, and I, but I had my, my, my hand down by my stomach and I'm just kind of making this fist sort of very slowly clenching and relaxing and you know, wiggling my fingers a little bit in sort of an agitated way while I'm talking. And I didn't know I was doing this because he says, 
do you realize that you're making you with your hand you're making a fist while you're talking and then look down and go oh yeah okay no i didn't know it so that's a classic example of subconscious behavior i was right. talking about something and all and my hand was making a fist i didn't know why and so he says well what's going on there and i'm and i'm going i don't, I don't know you know what i'm trying to tell you my story and he's going well if your fist could say something what would it say and i that question just sort of threw me for a loop because it was a very odd question and i thought well i don't know so i kind of felt into that and and i realized well you know there might be some something there and we started to work in that way and in the matter of about half an hour we unlocked through that gentle inquiry into something that was happening in the moment that I was totally unconscious of, because it's a hand thing. It's what they call somatic, right? So mm -hmm. somatic experience that I had a ton of anger about sort of being rejected, if you will, that had nothing to do with my girlfriend. It was really about my younger life and my family upbringing. And I had a whole lot of stuff that was glomming itself onto this situation because it looked like that one. So it was all this unresolved stuff that said, oh, here's an opportunity to attach to something similar. And people might think, well, that just sounds weird. But let me ask you, have you ever, you know, you, we're all familiar with the notion of like some, when you're, you're upset with something and then somebody walks in the room and says, Hey, have you seen the fork? And you turn around and go, no, I haven't seen the fork. Well, it's not about the fork that you're barking about. It's about the thing that happened before. It's a similar sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. That energy just sort of lands on the first convenient opportunity it has to express because more than anything, this kind of thing wants to move through. That's the healing urge. So by exploring this, I opened up a whole new world for me, and it really helped me dramatically. And at the end of the session, I said, so what was that? Where did you learn to do this? I said, oh, it's called Hakomi. It's a Hakomi process. And they teach it in Boulder. So I said, I have to know everything there is to know about that. <laughs> and so that was my introduction to somatic psychotherapy. And I, I signed up and studied uh, quite a lot. Uh, in that area for, for quite a few years. It's some incredible, amazing, life-changing stuff in that world. So that's somatic psychology. Right? <laughs> and what does that have to do with IT? Well, I don't know, but don't flee from it, you know. Yeah, I think, I think that's a wonderful explanation because I think um, when I'm teaching at a retreat and I say, okay, so get in touch where that feeling is in your body. They all look at me like, I don't know. And there's, we are so disconnected from our own physicality. And when we're in our minds like that, when we're stuck in our head, trying to work through a problem only in our head, mm -hmm. we are often completely unaware of what our body posture is. Even those very visible things of, are you making fists with your hands? You know, are you emphasizing every word with that much time <laughs> behind it? You know, and, and people recognize that, but you don't because you're stuck in that. And um, it's not common for people to make that extra step to draw you out to that. Well, right. And that's, it's not common at all in day-to-day -day culture that's why a good therapist in this world can help you land in 
or in the somatic world can help you mm, discover and explore what's already there. Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing about what you're saying is that in a mindfulness practice where you just sit down and you do a mindfulness meditation, for example, you focus on something that's body sensing, uh, you know, like your breath or some other aspect of your in the moment experience, mm -hmm. specifically for that purpose to get you out of your head and into your in the moment experience. And lo and behold, when you do that, you start to learn stuff like, my God, I'm really tense. I had no idea how tense I was. Do I walk around like this all the time? Well, that sucks. I'm walking around with this tense feeling constantly. And I'd really rather not have that be my in the moment experience all the time. Yeah. Suddenly you wake up to my world could be different. And that's a huge, huge thing. This is where I ask that question that you ask everybody who teaches mindfulness. What does mindfulness mean to you with the addition of coming from having a technical mind? And, you know, when I, I'm going to make this longer than I thought I was, <laughs> when I speak to groups that are engineers or yeah. technical at tech companies, I often hear, oh, that, that stuff's just silly or it doesn't work or I have to go all in my head and I've already got enough going on in there. You know, there's lots of stories that people tell me about why they don't think mindfulness has value to them. So going back to my question, <laughs> what does mindfulness mean to you and how is it useful to them? That is a great question. And I like to refer to the John Kabat-Zinn definition of mindfulness, which is the one I use in my work. Um, and I like it because it's not only a definition, it's a roadmap. And so my essentially summation of John Kabat-Zinn, and for those of you who may not know, listeners, John Kabat-Zinn was the author of uh, Full Catastrophe Living and Mindfulness, one, one of the big forces behind creating the mindfulness-based stress reduction class, which is extremely popular. Um, and he says, mindfulness is paying attention in a particular way. Um, and that way is on purpose, in the moment, and non-judgmentally. Mm. And so those are three criteria that you can apply to ask the question, am I practicing mindfulness? Mm -hmm. The first one being on purpose. And that's a big one because lots of times I'll have people say, well, how do I know if I'm being mindful? And, and because it has to be on purpose, the answer is, well, if you don't know, then you're not. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So you have to choose, you go, I'm choosing to be mindful right now. And if you're, and so you're aware of the choice, it's in your conscious mind. Mm -hmm. The next part is it's in the moment. So I could choose to be aware of my, my travel schedule for the week or my to-do list for tomorrow. And that's in the moment I'm looking at my to-do list, thinking about events that are going to happen in the future. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly legitimate and needed necessary function. Thank God as humans, we're good with that. But that's not about my in-the-moment experience. Mm -hmm. I'm planning for the future. But my in-the-moment experience is how do I feel right now? What's going on for me now? And then the third part of that is being non-judgmental. 
So once you say, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to pay attention to my breath for five minutes, because that's always in the moment. There's nothing, you, you don't have to think about, well, what's my breath doing? Is it good or bad, dark or evil, light or dark? You know, you don't have any, any conceptual notions about your breath. I mean, you can, but your breath is your breath, right? So mm -hmm. you're just breathing and noticing, breathing and noticing. And then not being in judgment about, oh, I suck about this. I'm no good with this. I don't know what I'm doing. This is frustrating. The mindfulness practice is just paying attention to that you're having those thoughts and feelings and then going, oh, I'm having a feeling like I'm no good at this or I'm bored to tears or whatever that is. It's not who you are. It's just something that's happening. Mm -hmm. And that way you're being non-judgmental. So that's the way I wrap up mindfulness and there's lots of variations on that theme like there's movement that can be mindful movement as well so that's part one right so part mm -hmm. two was how does that work in it or for people in that industry to the people who are going to uh, analytically say i'm already in my head or i'm you know they're you're coming from an um, an abstract idea of a judgment this isn't good for me I would say to them, well, the science is in on this. You know, there's hard science that shows that mindfulness is a value to people, that it helps them in a lot of dimensions from their well, just generalized well-being to increasing creativity, to helping them be more less depressed, more resilient, um, and even more creative. There's some work around that. And I would ask anybody who's in IT, do you work better stressed or not stressed? <laughs> you know, and some people some would answer that so question. Someone they they want to be stressed, but mm -hmm. uh, but then I'm going to say it's like, when do you have your biggest insights? Mm. You know, when do you have those breakthrough moments? And here's the thing: if you're really, really carefully mindful about those big moments, they're Right before them, there's usually sort of a big moment in yourself, kind of like a wait, huh? Something starts to come into focus that's a little bit bigger than what you had thought of before. Mm -hmm. And there's this moment of like, huh, well, what, huh? Well, what if, could it be? And suddenly you start to get into this curious, open, more open state of mind. And so instead of driving towards a solution, you're in a more receptive, considering place. And that's going to lead you to write better code and to <laughs> implement better solutions mm -hmm. and to architect better solutions mm -hmm. and to communicate better about it. Yes. And I, I would like to add to that as someone who did some rudimentary coding <laughs> over the last 20 years. Um, Often, it's a real habit for people who write code to sit down and work for six hours with nothing but, you know, Red Bull and Cheetos. Yeah. And to, you know, push through. We always have to push through. And if we could take a break just mm -hmm. for a moment, it could be a walk. It could be taking a breath, just allowing your mind to relax. It does amazing things. And yeah. we're missing that opportunity by 
pushing, pushing, pushing. And any coder who's made major mistakes or even small mistakes will tell you it came after working for six hours straight. And it's not necessarily the best way for your mind to be creative. Well, right. And so the question I would ask anybody, in regardless of their field, but particularly technologists or anyone who like has a, I'm going to grind it out mentality, mm-hmm. um, is like, is that helping you do your best work? And is there, wouldn't you want to optimize the process for the best results? And if the process, if that means that for five minutes every hour, you just stop and you simply look at the sky, and I'm just making this up. Mm -hmm. But if that was actually what was needed for your neurology to incorporate in a deeper way the work that you're doing, because sometimes it takes time to assimilate. There's this process of organic assimilation of the nervous system. You can tell somebody something and, you know, somebody's saying, well, I have to think about that. What's going on, right? It takes a while for ideas and concepts to kind of like sort themselves out. There's, there's what fires immediately in your neural networks. And then there's what fires subsequently. There's a brilliant book called Thinking Fast and Slow mm-hmm. that I would recommend for anyone to read. Love it. If, if a technologist was to think about their, their nervous system as an operating system and that, that they get to control, and if, if they choose to behave in a way that aligns with the optimization of the way that the mechanics, the mechanical optimization the way that works, then it just takes a while for the chemistry in the brain to adapt, to shift. I'll give you an example. I used to play piano. And um, I was learning a passage and I would study and study. And and a man for like 45 minutes, I couldn't get it right in this one thing. Go to sleep the next day, sit down, play it perfect the first time. Mm -hmm. And that's a common experience. Now, why is that? Because because of the assimilation, trying to drive it, practice it through wasn't working. Mm -hmm. But you let it settle. The, the, the neurons have a chance to kind of organize around what you're trying to do. You come back, that network is set in, you fire the network off and it works. It's sort of like to use a technical term, you're trying to overdrive your RAM at a clock speed it can't manage. Mm. Yeah. You know? and yeah. If, if you can, if you could slow down the clock rate on the RAM, you won't, you won't drop bits. And when you drop bits, the operating system freezes up and you have to reboot. <laughs> that's a great explanation because yeah you don't want to be dropping bits you just don't right and that, and take, to me that's yeah. why you know we have these breakthroughs when we're in the shower you know if we stop pushing 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 and allow our brain to do what it does best which is process while we're not paying attention or while we're focusing on something else which is why meditation in small bites works really well to help the brain allow to settle. And you talked a little bit earlier about the science and, you know, putting people in fMRI machines Mm -hmm. and studying how the brain works during this is relatively new science. And there've been a lot of breakthroughs in the last few years. Well, right. And they can demonstrate that if you do this regularly, it actually changes the structure of your brain. You actually develop brain material that wasn't there before and that and the place that it develops is higher cognitive functions and so you actually develop more capacity 
to be intelligent and to be conscious. And who doesn't want to be more intelligent and more conscious if you can, right? Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is sit your ass down and meditate for a few minutes a day. And it changes your life. And I don't mean in a small way. It begins to change the way you relate to everything that you do, including the way that you code, including the way you show up in group meetings, including the way you show up in relationship. Um, it changes everything and changes it for the better. Mm. Yeah, undoubtedly. Mm. So we're both pro-meditation. That's yep, easy. We got that part. <laughs> we got that. We like the mindfulness thing. Somatic, we like that too. That's very <laughs> interesting science. There's a lot of things going on out there. And um, I'd love to know what gets you most excited about mm -hmm. what you do. And let's say specifically when you're working with people. Well, there's a couple of things. One of the things that is my mission in life is to see this light bulb go off in people when they get it, that they are not their thoughts. Mm. The moment that that lands on someone, it, it's, it's, a, it's like um, a puzzle. And once you see the solution to the puzzle, you can never unsee it. But this puzzle is one that once you understand that, it changes who you are fundamentally. Mm. You can never be the same person. And when that happens, it's like a holy moment. It's like being in the presence of a, of a, an awakening or a sacred experience in a way. And it can be fast and it can be slow, but there's always this astonishment on the face of someone who really gets it. Mm, you're going to have to explain you are not your thoughts a little more deeply. Sure. Uh, thank you for the question. When, when you're in meditation in a deeper way, like I, this gets a little esoteric. It's, but when you're doing a mindful meditation, as we mentioned before, often you're paying attention to some physical aspect. There's you watching your breath and there's you paying attention to maybe your thoughts. The question is, who's doing the watching? Mm -hmm. There's a you that is watching. And once you begin to land in the you that is watching, you realize that your thoughts are just happening in you. They are not you. They're just thoughts that you're having. And so who is the you that is having the thoughts? And when you have a somatic experience of that, it suddenly changes everything because you suddenly realize that all your beliefs, I'm a bad person, I'm a good person, I'm this, I'm lucky, I'm unlucky, people don't like me, people love me, whatever they are, they're just thoughts about your experience. They're not who you are. And mm -hmm. who you are is such so fundamentally more deeper than that that no one's opinion of you can matter to you anymore because it doesn't change in any way who you are. Mm. Now, how you show up may be different. You might say, well, I'm showing up as a jerk in my life and, uh, and people give me feedback that I'm acting like a jerk, but it's sort of like a kid, right? Like a, let's say a child is walking around and it wants to uh, put a, a fork in an electric outlet, right? Is the child bad for doing that? No, 
Right. It's just a behavior, right? So the child is different than the behavior. Mm -hmm. But somehow as adults, we don't keep that same perspective. It's kind of like, well, he was a drug dealer. He's a bad person. You know, now, the behavior was bad, but who they are fundamentally is something very different from that. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean that you forgive and forget bad behavior, but it does mean we reorient to judging people in a completely different way. Mm. And that this person in this moment isn't the same person that it was in that moment. The being that we are kind of always is, but who we show up as, like mm -hmm. every moment is kind of new, right? And if you really want to get into the metaphysics in a way, mm -hmm. the moment is, con it's like, a, uh, it's like, the, the quantum foam, right? It's kind of like constantly emerging every moment, kind of like all of the universe is being birthed every moment every, for eternity, for whatever the heck that means. But, and we are kind of on the precipice of that emergent bubble of creation mm -hmm. and somehow have this facility to be connected to both the magnificent emergent timelessness of it and the temporal part of it at the same time which is this temporary life that i live from you know year one to year whatever as brett the personality we have a foot in both worlds and that's the meaning of the yin yang right so we we are we have this this expansive part that you can connect to that's the the core of who you are and, but we, we get confused because we have all these experiences and we think, oh, that's who I am. I, I'm, I'm the product of my experiences. Mm -hmm. And that becomes your story and you align with your story. Well, I'm Brett who grew up in IT and has this mindfulness thing. And that's, those are skills and things that I've adopted, roles that I've played, but who I am is a, is in a more fundamental way is something deeper than that. Yeah, yeah. I know that's a lot of words, but I, I hope some of what I've said. <laughs> yes, I get it. Yeah, I think I think the readers get it, too, which is the most important thing. And I think, you know, we carry around so much in ourselves, all the self judgments that we have for past behaviors that are no longer the same person you know that we evolve yeah. and we forget that we evolve and you know i like to talk about how we put people in boxes all the time yeah. that person's a cashier so this is what they must think this is what their life must be like this is what their family must be like all of those things we it's so much easier to just put people in boxes than it is to actually stop and observe them yeah talk to them yeah and when you realize that that's just a function of our brain that's, that is an optimization function for our brains right. to help us to get through life, to categorize everything and slot it so that you don't have to think about it because you want to go on to the next thing or you want to keep focus. You don't want to have to think about the nature of, of, a, of a, a, you don't have to go beyond your immediate idea because that's the easiest, fastest thing. And that's what's going to happen. They, they know from studies, for example, that remember I mentioned earlier, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm -hmm. that book, that you can show someone, um, you can put someone in a lab 
and show them a flash, a picture on a screen so fast that your conscious mind can't tell you what it is. You, if, if you ask them, so what did you see? They'll go, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I saw. They'll say, how do you feel about it? And they'll go, I didn't like it. Or I thought it was, I thought it was nice. So that's weird because you will have a definite opinion about if you liked it or not, and you don't know what it is. <laughs> now, why is that? It's because the ner- this has to do, if you think of the brain as an operating system, once again, that part of our operating system that has sensors for deciding whether or not we like or don't like something happens before the part of our brain that figures out what it is. So mm-hmm. it's just a sequence. It goes, the signal goes into your eyes and the eyes re- decode this information. The part of your brain gets involved and says, well, this is, I don't like this, or I do like this, renders a decision, feeds that into the part that helps you figure out what it is. And if you just don't let that part that figures out what it is get enough information to work, that other part still did its job. Mm-hmm. And we operate like that all the time. And so you, someone walks in the room, boom, you have an impression of what you think about them before they've ever opened their mouth. Mm-hmm. And you have that somatic feeling as well. Yes, even exactly. Even though you didn't recognize what it was. Yes, exactly. I, I think something that people overlook, and certainly I have in the past and probably will again, that <laughs> I will sense the emotion in my body before I recognize the emotion. Yes. And if I can stop and take a breath in between or even a tiny pause, it will keep me from going off on a tangent because I'm triggered by something and I didn't realize I was triggered until it was way too late to recover myself. And what you've named right there is a really clear and uh, informed uh, experience of a mindful person experiencing what's it like to intercept a reactive trigger Mm. and consciously choose to do something different. That's a pretty advanced thing. So that's a great, and you said it very well, it's exactly like that. And because it fires in your body first, there's a moment where you can become aware, oh, wait, I don't know what's going on, but I feel angry. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to respond angrily. So I'm going to take a breath. And the moment you take, you choose to take that breath, that is when you become mindful and decide. And what happened to you then is that all of a sudden you have choices mm-hmm. you didn't have before. And you can interrupt that impulse to be yes, reactive. Exactly. Yes. Instead, you can respond. Yeah. So you've done the good work of like, okay, if you didn't have that, what happens? It just goes through and boom, and there's a hardwired response, right? Mm-hmm. And reactive. There's no choice involved. And so consequently, we could say that mindfulness is about freedom. And choice, yes. It's about having choices, mm-hmm. about giving yourself the capacity to make choices. I love that so much. That's just perfect. It's, you know, and, and we don't realize how much of our lives we are mindful and not mindful and being able to even discern between the two is a step in the right direction. Oh, it's essential. And I, I really truly believe that it's the, the thing, the thing that humanity needs right now mm. to get us to the culture and the world that we want to live in. 
you know, we all want to be heard. We all want to feel safe. We all want to be respected as beings, not necessarily for what you do, but for who you are and, uh, and have, um, have a, a, a government and a culture and a society that isn't, that supports uh, the emergent, creative, holistic field of caring and mm-hmm. nurturing that is possible whenever you create organizations around the fact that we are people and not objects. Yes. Not yes. concept boxes, right? <laughs> I am a concept box. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you are to a lot of people. I am too to a lot of people, right? Yeah. And a lot of people are that to me, unless they're right in front of me and I'm thinking about them. They're just an idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Brett, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time and it's always it's always interesting to talk to you. I really I really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. It, it is a ton of fun, and I enjoy talking to you too. We, we have a similar background in some ways, and that makes it easy. <laughs> it does make it a little easier, yeah. So why don't you tell people where they can find you uh, and some of the things that you have to offer that people can find on your website or on social media. Sure. Um, I have a website called languageofmindfulness.com. It's a lot to type out, but it's worth it. Languageofmindfulness.com. And I do uh, coaching and I offer a free session to anybody who wants to just see if it would work for them to explore because I very finely craft. uh, It's not cookie cutter. It's very much about who you are right now. What do you need? We take some time to inquire into that and figure out what, what would be helpful for you. Mm. And um, so that can either be working with somebody who's already experienced with mindfulness and wants to deepen it. My specialty is mindful communications. And so I've been working lately with some people who are involved with uh, public speaking and that kind of thing to, you know, be more authentic in that that kind of um, process, which is a Mm. ton of fun. Mm -hmm. I have a, um, a page for people who are interested in getting started with mindfulness meditation. It's languageofmindfulness.com forward slash now, N-O-W. And if you go to that page, there'll be a place where you can access um, mindfulness FAQ. What is mindfulness meditation? I have a video on that and a sample meditation that you can use to get you started. Oh, that's great. Great. And I know they can find you on LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn too. I'm uh, Language of Mindfulness is a business there. You can look that up. Okay. And Brett Hill, B-R-E-T-T-H-I-L-L. I think there are a few, but it's pretty easy to sort me out from the list. And <laughs> I try to be reasonably active on LinkedIn. And my Twitter, my Twitter handle is the same as my name, B-R-E-T-T-Hill, H-I-L-L. Okay. And we will have those links in the blog post on JanetFouts.com. So Look for that after the broadcast. And uh, if you have any questions for Brett, reach out to him because he's a really good communicator. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Absolutely. My pleasure as well. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Mindful Social. It's been so great to see the subscriptions growing and the feedback has really helped me make the show even better. So if you know somebody who needs to be on the show, email me at Janet at JanetFouts.com. And please send me feedback there too, or post a review on the podcast platform you're listening on. Oh, 
And do me a favor, share this show on social media or with a friend. Thank you.